Hello and welcome to Design in an Age of Crisis, a new mini-series from Chatham House and the London Design Biennale on the Undercurrents podcast feed. I'm Anna Yang, Acting Executive Director of the Hoffman Centre for Sustainable Resource Economy at Chatham House. And over the course of this week, I'll be exploring the role of design can play in solving the challenges facing our world as a part of the launch of our international call for radical design solutions. On July 22, 2020, London Design Biennale and Chatham House launched an open call inviting radical design solutions from the world design community, the public and young people. This open call hopes to harness the creativity that comes from crisis across four areas, health, environment, society and work. And you can submit ideas until 31st of August 2020. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Dame Sally Davis, Kelly Doran and Charlene Prempet to discuss how design can make staying healthy be easier for everyone and how can design empower everyone. Professor Dame Sally Davis is the former Chief Medical Officer for England and is now the Master of Trinity College at University of Cambridge. Sally is also the UK Special Envoy on Antimicrobial Resistance. Kelly Doran is a Senior Principal at design firm Mass that research, build and advocate for architecture that promotes justice and human dignity. Kelly has led the design and implementation of several of Mass's projects across East Africa, notably the award-winning Munini District Hospital, and now oversees Mass work in Europe, West Africa and global business development. Sally and Kelly both join our discussion on the biggest issues facing health. Charlene Prempe is the founder of A Vibe Called Tech, an initiative exploring the impact of technology on the Black community. She spearheads events, research, and workshops across London. For Charlene, technology, be it artificial intelligence or social media platforms, has a role to play in ending racial injustice. She's also the communication and strategy lead for society-centered design at projects by IF. Charlene joined our discussion on how design might empower societies. So welcome Kelly, Charlene and Sally into the Undercurrent podcast. I would like to ask you, in your view, what role could design play in providing solutions to global issues? Sally, would you like to go first? Well, I, th- I want to set the framework for this about what is health. Mm. And health can be our physical health, it can be our mental health or our social health. And actually, a lot of the time when people talk about health, they mean the absence of actual illness. But we go through phases when we're, we have maybe some chronic diseases or mild illness and serious illnesses, which may be life-threatening, um, even if they are curable. And if you think about design, well, I was brought up that good design was no more expensive than bad design, and it should permeate our whole lives. So clearly... Our whole lives are permeated by design, as is health underpinning our lives. So we could talk about health, the public's health, and design. Do we have easy access to physical activity? Is it easy to walk, to cycle, to play? Are the stairs at the front of buildings? Is it difficult to smoke? Are people encouraged to drink alcohol in a social rather than an addictive form. So you could look at things like that. 
or you could start to look at the illness side and how do we design hospitals or treatments and management much closer to the people who need it in their communities. So you start to look at how we design those. And then you have to think, what are you designing for? Are you designing for function? And I think design that delivers good function is great. And that could be easy to clean so you don't get infections, easy to find your way around, easy to operate a machine or to actually physically, surgically operate. Or are we designing for joy and quality of life? Thank you, Sally. That is a very helpful framing on the issue. Kelly, you're an architect and you've worked in many of the design solutions around health around the world. Mm-hmm. What is your take on this? Yeah, I think that, you know, to, to Sally's point, you know, the entire planet is designed at this point, largely. And we're, we're designing within the spectrum of wellness to illness. A lot of the kind of healthcare infrastructure we associate it with the illness side of it, but you know, I think the how our cities are designed, how our neighborhoods are designed, our houses, if they're designed for wellness, uh, you have a radically different uh, society, right? And I think the other the other thing to look at this and, and combine, you know, this question of global issues would be looking at health also from a planetary lens. How does human health relate to planetary health and you know, some of the thinking around the One Health movement, which we are, uh, as a practice, focusing on about how does the built environment link to ecological health and also the impacts on climate when we're building these things because of the profound impacts uh, construction and the operations of buildings in our discipline have on the climate and also on human health. I think what we're seeing right now is that the pandemic is accelerated by the state of buildings and cities. It's either accelerated or decelerated because this is, you know, we create the space that we cohabitate. You know, buildings are social condensers. So how we've constructed our cities and uh, the places we occupy has really had a, a big impact on, on our health daily. It's important that you bring the environment angle. And I think another angle that I want to bring in is the social justice angle. And also, can how can design play a role in, in finding different kinds of solutions? Charlene, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, actually, I want to pick up on a point that both, both Sally and Kelly made. It seems like we're doing that in a chain. <laughs> but this idea of design as reducing negative impacts, be it on health, the environment, racism, etc. And this alternative about design be able to facilitate positive outcomes. And that, I suppose, obviously I'd like design to reduce the bad things that happen in the world, but I'm particularly excited about the great things that design can do for society. And so when I look at design in regards to racism, I look at it not so much as how it can reduce racism, but how it can create deliberate anti-racist thinking. Similarly, when I think about design and its impact on poverty, I'm not thinking about how can we stop people being poor, but how can we truly make people have wealth, right? And when I suppose, when Kelly was talking about the environment and sustainability, I'm like, how can we make the earth flourish? And I think that's the space for me where design and society overlap in a way that can produce truly kind of extraordinary outcomes. Using that angle, in your view, what design ideas do you think actually has changed the world? So I have a fairly niche view on this because of, especially because of the work that I'm doing at the moment around society-centred design. Kelly especially can speak to this, I'm sure, in that a lot of design thinking over the past however many years has all been about human-centred design, right? 
And so a lot of the products and systems that we see are based on human-centered design, like how can we best design for the individual? And I think as a result, actually, most of the things that we've created do only really benefit the individual and don't consider the impact of those designs on wider society. So I'm not massively excited about a lot of the things that we have at the moment in terms of design. What I am excited about is this kind of new idea framework that's coming through, be it with um, people like Projects by If and society-centred design or humanist-centred design is coming up a lot as a kind of frame. And how do we start to change what is a quite an ingrained process, starting from the person and instead start from society as a whole and vulnerable groups? So yeah, I'm excited about sea change. I'm not excited about what's currently happened. Yeah, and then I think so moving from individual to sort of collective and social. Exactly. Kelly? Yeah, I have a niche answer for this as well. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll say an idea or an invention that has changed the world and put us in the, the place that we're in right now. And I'd say for my discipline, it's the invention of the air conditioner in 1902 by Carrier and the impact that that has had on the way we design our cities and our buildings. It has led over the last hundred years to buildings that are hermetically sealed. You know, they rely on respirators to breathe and to heat and cool themselves. And the result, we have, a, we have incredibly sick buildings that are energy intensive across the world and across typologies. And I'd say that that, that invention and the associated kind of technological change that happened within architecture and specifically, if you want to talk about healthcare in the space of that, has profoundly changed the architecture of, of the world and has placed us in the condition we are right now that we are facing a climate crisis twinned with a health crisis that's really hard to design ourselves out of because of perhaps unintended consequences of one invention, just to point mm. one out. Can I add lips to that? Please. Because I get so fed up with the fact it's difficult to find the spares and people take the lift even for one or two flights. I can quite understand that you can't expect everyone to walk up six flights, but you could have lifts that stopped every six flights and then links between them or something. But it is bonkers that we are getting people moving up and down these sick buildings, as you call them, and not thinking about their health and the social interactions they will get as they move around the buildings too. They correlate, you know. You can only go so tall that you require all these things by really sealing yourself out from the outside environment. You can't have a 50th floor climactically with windows open because of the amount of wind that's happening at that elevation, for instance. Because when you think about big tower blocks, right, it's quite extreme ends of wealth. So it's either people who are really poor and like council estates often, and like they live in these high rises, or people who are really rich, um, like living on the kind of penthouse so are the solutions to this lift problem different at the moment in those spaces? Like what, what are people looking at? The lift as an invention is responding to the desire to go vertical and land value and a bunch of other things that have allowed that for that. So I think that's a kind of my, my comment about the air conditioner applies to any typology and any yeah. social spectrum mm. that has a far greater impact on our health technologically and as an idea than the lift does, I would argue. Mm. But I think it is about the unintended consequences of like when you come with a solution that you think is addressing one problem, but then actually it trickles into other sort of areas. Charlene's point about are we designing for communities rather than individuals? 
And I think that if you look at some of the great cities, whether you want to take Paris or Delhi or Brasilia, they have been designed for the society to show certain things, but not for the communities and definitely for the ruling classes rather than the everyday person. And I think to find a way to design for those communities will be difficult, but terribly important to achieve. And it's not just the living space that they live in, but it's the open space. I mean, lockdown has been such a different experience for the poor in cramped space with no access to balconies and gardens, and then less green space close to where they live. So it is all of those issues together. And then the difficulty with public transport. I think what's interesting about the kind of standard design process when you're looking at the research phase is that there's not enough projection for like really extreme circumstances. And so like if in the research phase when designing like buildings or like open spaces or flats, if people design that with the idea that what if a pandemic happened, then a lot of the consequences we're seeing now wouldn't be as problematic. And I kind of like the idea of like starting to think of like disaster scenarios a bit more in the process of design, be it for health or like other areas of society. Design is a manifestation of a certain era. Right. So some of the things that we just talked about that you talked about is like it is a manifestation of a certain era that we used to live in. And we know that a lot of things need to change at the society level, at the environment level, at the health level. And I think what COVID has revealed is this absolute urgent need to rethink how we function as a society on the health angle. And, and then so the question is that can we apply the design thinking or design to sort of deliver the healthy and fairer future that we want? Ali, please. So, well, of course we can design better to prevent pandemics and to manage in a pandemic better. And it starts with preventing infection and infection prevention and control and trying to stop transmission. And that means you've got to think about the social space of each individual and their needs. We need to allow enough space and it's got to be well designed. But then as you design it, how do you design it? Now, clearly I come from the hard health um, or the illness background. And, you know, if you design curves into your toilet, it's much less likely to catch infections in the crevices and the corners It's much easier to clean, therefore it doesn't pass infection so well. So there's something about curves instead of crevices. There's something about the whole design of the environment, spatially, for the function you're using it for, and to prevent infection happening and transmitting. Kelly, do you want to come in on that? Because you're an architect and all. Yeah, <laughs> I, like, I mean, this is this is the world that we you know we spend our days in here. Is you know we're currently designing a, a hospital in Dhaka in Bangladesh, and um, in this design phase, looking at it through a kind of like a, a COVID or pandemic setting and a non one, and how how can the design of healthcare kind of oscillate between say normal and these extreme events, and how can it be designed to kind of turn off and on through these extremes? you know, to your earlier point about thinking about extreme conditions on the early stages. And it's been really, you know, from the beginning, uh, our work 
in our first project in Pataro with the partners in health and the, and the Rwanda Ministry of Health was in a setting that didn't have electricity. And when it did, it was, you know, infrequent. And so we were faced with designing wards to limit infection. And, and, and in this case, like you know, drug resistant tuberculosis and other airborne infections. And we went back to the first principles of passive ventilation. How do you cross, how do you create cross ventilation? How do you take advantage of the thermodynamics of a sick body and the heat coming off the body, lifting the vapors very off the body? Very exciting. And, 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 and killing it with a you know, very simple solution, an ultraviolet light above a certain height. And you know, these were like very first principle, basic architectural uh, ideas that had kind of gone dormant for the last 50 to 60 years mm. and were resurrected in a, in a place where there's constraints. Yes, absolutely. And I think what made me, you know, just also sitting through these discussions and listening to all this debate that this, all these working groups had was also how deeply connected the social and environmental angle is as well. Because I think in a way, you know, obviously we think about environment and we think about health, but also the, the way that our current infrastructures are set up, it's very deeply unequal and unfair. Like I want to get Charlene to come and talk about this from the angle of uh, social fairness and then social change. I've been thinking a lot. So like Sally, right at the beginning of this, when she was talking about health, highlighted the differences, obviously, between like physical health and mental health. And inevitably, a lot of the conversations that have taken place around COVID-19 have been about the physical health of citizens, right? Which makes sense. It's an infectious disease that hits you physically. But I think what we've seen with a lot of the stuff that's happened with Black Lives and the reaction to that, all of the kind of protesting, but also the more kind of private reactions, I suppose how the design of the spaces that a lot of Black people who may be underprivileged, how that kind of sense of oppression has played out during COVID and therefore the sense of like relief in terms of like getting out and being able to kind of talk about their experiences and protest on behalf of their communities. The kind of small spaces that we have have been very like detrimental to how COVID has spread, but also I think it's had a, a bigger impact on the mental health of the Black community as well. Mm. Um, and all of that has kind of like crushed together. And that's where we're seeing um, this kind of massive outpouring of grief with all of the Black life stuff. And do you think that design can issue well-deployed and well thought of and managing the unintended consequences uh, of it if we you know based on what we discussed before can help to tackle some of those issues I think like definitely in the having more physical space and that space being designed well the kind of connection between kind of architecture and like anti-racist architecture has probably been a bigger thing in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And just even like when you think about how like slave ships were built, right? And all of that, there's just like a history of it. So like definitely the way of like physical design supporting anti-racist movements. Obviously, like when you look at the impact of COVID-19, they're kind of saying now that a big part of the issue with it having a bigger impact on the black community is because of the spaces that we live in. And so, like, clearly there's, like, a role for it there. But then I suppose, again, I bring it back to this idea, rather than trying to minimise these negative impacts, like, what can design do to make life better for a community that's felt oppressed for a long time? I think there are opportunities, both in, like, how, like, design thinking in what we've been talking about. So just thinking about how particular designs are going to impact vulnerable communities, not just kind of black communities, but disabled communities, like particular designs are going to impact women, just kind of just thinking about different groups in the process. 
And I think hopefully we're at a point now where that's going to happen more. Mm. So in this partnership between London Design Biennale and Chatham House and this call to action, what about this initiative that kind of captured your imagination? Well, I'm delighted to bring design into health. And I'd be excited to see things that help improve people's health, whether as groups or as individuals, through improving their physical activity, their social health, through their experience indoors and outdoors, and their mental health in the way they interact with others, let alone the possibilities when you get to the healthcare facilities themselves and how many are not well designed. And I think we should never forget it's not just architecture, it's processes, designing the right processes to make it easy. How do we design a digital health offering so it works for all our people, that it doesn't segregate them unintentionally, that it is easy, intuitive for everyone. I was very interested in COVID early on, that in Israel, one hospital, when they heard that one of their community might have it, sent along a package and it had um, a tablet and it had a way of monitoring your temperature, your heart rate, your oxygen levels and things like that. And it was really easy, apparently. So even the elderly could log in and have an online consultation, feeling safe at home. And then they were picked up if there were signs of illness that meant they needed to be in hospital. Things like that to make the design easy, to use digital to make lives easy and to connect people so they don't get lonely. Thank you, Sally. Charlene, what about this initiative has captured your imagination? I'm really excited about the idea of people starting to realise, like outside of the design community, that design is a solution to lots of societal problems. I think we have a tendency to pivot to policy the entire time. So like this is going on, like what should the government do about like X or Y? Or even within like commercial companies, the first thing is like, what's their policy? What's their policy? But at the beginning, before we were being recorded, I think, um, we were talking about Facebook and all of the myriad problems that they have. But the policy department, the always ones being rolled out, when most of the things that are wrong with Facebook are embedded in the design of all of their platforms. So like, that's the issue. So for me, what I'm excited about is just even just that step change for people to realise that design can fix a lot of the problems that we're seeing. I love the fact as well that it's not just designers, it's like young people can get involved in this who often have the best solutions to everything. So that part of it, I'm yeah particularly keen on. Yeah, that's the bit that I'm also very excited about. Kelly? You know, one of the, the main thing that stuck with me was the conversation again about the spectrum of thinking about designing for health from wellness to illness. And, and it was Thomas Heatherwick that did the simple diagram that interestingly enough, like wellness has we in it and illness has I in it. And that if you design for the we, you alleviate a lot of the design for the I, back to this earlier discussion we had about the individual versus the collective. And I think the more, you know, I'd be really interested to see, like, if there's more attention on, you know, towards the we side of it, because a lot of that upfront stuff that that Charlene and and Sally are talking about, about, you know, social determinants of health. I'm married to an epidemiologist, so I'll kind of feign to talk about it this way, but... (laughs) 
that the space, you know, the spaces of our city have like dramatic impacts on people's health. And you see it, you see even in COVID, I mean, there's structural racism built into our cities, right? Through the design of the housing and the configuration of neighborhoods. And that's, again, a lot of unintended consequences here, but a lot of it has to do with the physical space and urban design of neighborhoods and access to green space and the quality of that green space and on and on and on. And and I think that if we spent more time and attention of talking about those things and designing those things and engaging the communities, frankly, in the design of those spaces, that would address a lot of what Charlene's talking about, about how do you, I mean, how do you reconcile these truths around racism and the kind of history and legacy of, of many of these neighborhoods? I mean, obviously for us, the, the issue between society, health, work, and environment, they're all interlinked, right? And then obviously at the center of it is us as human beings, also our relationship with other human beings and with the space. And that actually is a theme that kind of trickled through a lot. And I can see this commonality of like moving from I to we. I can see this sort of the discussion about us reassessing our relationship with work, with each other, with the environments that we live. And in a way, this is what excites me about this initiative is also, you know, a call for everybody to kind of think about, you know, what kind of different future that they want, which is more radical, which can start some kind of a deeper structural change for a future that we want to live in. I think this difference between policy and action just needs highlighting. Mm. We all want change. It will be extraordinarily difficult. It will need money. It will need thought. And what this initiative is pushing is the thinking in order to draw the money in. But if actually our building regulations in our country allow a very small space per person, then they allow certain structural issues to be the norm then the design becomes very difficult. So I wouldn't forget the policy side of what needs to be done for communities to be safe and well going forwards and building on that as well. Because if we leave it at wonderful design, they will be constrained when it happens, not only by the budget, by the regulations. And the regulations... I would argue, are going to need some shifting. And I bet we haven't thought enough about that side. Mm. Now, that's an important reminder. Shalini, did you want to say, come in on this? Yeah, just that I do, I do agree with you, Sally, and you're right. Like, one without the other, they both fail. Um, I suppose my issue's been that I feel like, especially over the past few months, and more private companies, in fact, is that they've been hiding behind policy because it's often, and I'll kind of just point to the government, where well, we did what like what the policy said. We're kind of were adhering to policy. Mm. And I think often, not always, but often, design is easier and quicker to change. And so where possible, if we can kind of exert some of the issues and like resolve some of the problems without going to policy, I think we can and we should, if we can. We I should. love it. I love it. <laughs> and I want it to happen. But I'm scared they'll go on hiding if we don't work at it. That's what I'm scared of, the continued hiding. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, like, at what scale this this policy change and regulate, like, where, at what level does it need to happen? And clearly the answer is all levels. And, uh, you know, listening 
to an interview of Brian Stevenson yesterday on Ezra Klein's podcast and talking about how to, like within the United States, how to start making changes around, you know, the structural racism coming to terms with it. And what I draw upon his is like, it needs to happen at all levels, but you need to start at the bottom and you need to start at the kind of community level or institutional level, you know? And I think this kind of conversation, I think what, like, if I, again, if I look here, I think at the borough level or or even within at your local school or your like the surgery, like how can you develop policies that can have real change about the kind of not because the building regulations and the things, again, I'm kind of talking to my niche here that can happen that will regulate everything. But it, I think it's more about the actual space of the city. Again, if we look at what COVID and what helped for people in our discussion here. I want to think about more about the urban realm. And that really falls in the boroughs and smaller government to control either the city and, and, and like, Hey, we need more green space for this neighborhood. How do we make that happen? Mm. Right. Because it was interesting just through COVID noticing where I live up in Walthamstow, my park was packed every day and it was packed with people of all backgrounds, all demographics, and definitely a lot of children. And it really revealed the demography of my neighborhood pretty quickly. And also people that don't have sizable backyards or the fact that my neighborhood has so many kids in it, you know, self-included. And I think that a lot of the neighborhoods at the highest prevalence of, of COVID are in similar situations where there's a shortage of, you know, that space per person really, you know, we could have minimum criteria as far as like the size of a, like a house, but I think we also should have minimum criteria for size of available green space for that same density yes. of people. Yes, please. <laughs> and and if, if we looked at it that way, if everybody was entitled to, you know, I don't know, 10 square meters of park within a kilometer, uh, a city that's already blessed with a lot of green space would even have more. And I think you'd, you'd be, it'd be interesting because there are green space deserts in the city and, and it relates to a lot of the other things around health. So I think something as simple as that could really happen at, at the borough level and uh, engage, I think, a kind of smaller community to, to engage it and not rely on, a, on say, a, a government right now, which is, I won't even, as Sally would said, let's not get into it. <laughs> I think that idea of like the bottom up can go even further when it comes to design. Because like if you think of design thinking as just being like creative ways of solving problems, and what's nice about this call out as well, like I said, is that it's open and it's open to everyone. So like, because everyone can design, right? It, it doesn't take kind of academic or professional background. And I think with a lot of the problems that we're talking about, be them health or sustainability or like anti-racism, I think this idea that everyone had the role to play in design to help solve these problems is really nice. Yeah. And I think hopefully it also kind of invokes a democratization of design, but also politicalization. I'm struggling with the correct term here. I mean, just was reading Greta Thunberg's response to the EU uh, COVID relief package. If if you've seen this recently, you know, everybody hailing this package is an amazing moment for the EU. And she coming out and said, what a missed opportunity. You guys didn't listen to us. And And it, and it really, you know, just illustrated, you know, to me, she is, you know, I think she's my hero right now. I mean, she, you know, her comments land every time, like you are not taking us seriously. When are you guys going to finally listen? And I think that that kind of demand really, we all need to become Greta. Like we Mm. need to take on, we need to take on her anxiety and her frustration and and anger uh, in a way and bring it to whatever we're doing uh, to demand different because we, we don't have time to, to, to wait and think that someone else is going to do it for us. 
And I think we have to think about some of the things that really irritate people. I've never forgotten one of my patients when I met him, and he wasn't well. He had sickle cell and he had a pain crisis, and he was really bad-tempered. And I said, is this a pain? Do you need better painkillers? And he said, no, Sally. I've been asked my name and address and date of birth 17 times. I've counted. You're the only one who knew who I was. You know, I said, oh. So we actually then, when he got better, went through his process and we totally changed it so that he was asked much less. Or uh, on occasions, they'd say, just want to check that this band is the right one for you. So he felt much more in control. But we need to, I think Charlene's made the point beautifully, listen to people and get them involved in what's the problem and what solution do they want. I love it. I love this conversation. Like you said, demand, let's demand more. Let's do things ourselves. And let's feel inspired to completely radical future, which is better for the next generation. Well, thank you all. This has been incredibly inspiring. That's it for this mini-series, Design in an Age of Crisis from Chatham House and the London Design Biennale on the Undercurrent podcast feed. Thank you for joining us. You can submit ideas to the open call until 31st of August 2020. A number of ideas will be selected for our online exhibition, Design in an Age of Crisis, from September 2020. Ideas may also be exhibited at the London Design Biennale in June 2021. Chatham House will consider how some of the ideas might be turned into a reality. If you want to find out more and submit an idea to the open call, visit londondesignbiennale.com forward slash open call. You can also find us on social media through Twitter handles at London Design Biennale and at Chatham House or through the hashtag Design Resonance. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.